0: People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And welcome to People of the Book It's Shushan Purim. It is the 22nd of March. It's just after the equinox. We're going into autumn and we have a ex- very exciting guest in the studio joining us today, Gail Shamol, Welcome to High FM again.
1: Thank you so much for having me here.
0: The book is *The Accident*. It's just been launched in uh, in Johannesburg, in South Africa. It's a wonderful book. Uh, Thank you. probably is more for the for the female book club market, but I actually finished it in two days over the last weekend. It was really very, very riveting.
1: That's what I like to hear, and I think it says something about the danger of labelling a book as for the for the woman reader, um, when often it means there are a lot of men who will enjoy a book that they might not pick up if it's labelled wrong.
0: So, yeah, let's do it with labels, and The Accident is a book that people must pick up. To start off with, can you please introduce yourself in your own words and on your own terms to all of our listeners?
1: Oh, that's quite a big ask. (laughs) Um, So, I'm I'm a writer, I'm the author of Four Novels. And I have a day job as well because you have to if you're a writer. I'm, I'm the CEO of the Advertising Regulatory Board, and I'm a mom.
0: That's, uh, it's a very lot to juggle. We'll get, we'll get to that later. But before we start asking how you manage all of all of these different roles, what type of books does Gail Schimmel write? This is the fourth one. Your first one was called Marriage Vows. It came out in 2008. Then whatever happens to the Cowley twins in twenty thirteen, the park just two years ago in twenty seventeen, and now uh, the accident.
1: I'm getting a bit faster as you can tell because the kids are getting a bit older. Um, it's very hard and you know, I open talking about labels, it's very hard to label books I find, but I do think I write book club reads. I think that is a good label. The other label that I like is domestic suspense. So it's somewhere between, you know, it's not a thriller. But it's, there is there is always something that's going to happen, and I hope a sense in the reading that you're wondering what it is that's lurking and what is going to happen. So I think that's where I fall. I like the term as well. I think that it was coined by Marianne Keyes, griplet. So it's, again, not quite a thriller, but you're fairly gripped. Um, I think that's what I write. and And then women's fiction, but as we've just discussed, not necessarily a good label.
0: Where do you find the time in between holding down a career and being a wife and a mother?
1: So what's interesting is, you know, as you, as you name the dates of my books, I have been more productive in the last few years and it's also been probably the hardest years of my career. I've took, I took on a very challenging project about um, a year and a half, two years ago. And I think it comes down to, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. I think it's that old truth that when you've got so much to do, finding time to write 500 words a day is the least of my problems. Um, but when, I, when I've got nothing to do, and then it's quite difficult. You know, on holiday, it's quite difficult to make myself sit down and do the writing that I want to do every day because there's nothing else that I need to do, so I put it off, and there's no one who can procrastinate like a writer. We will do anything rather than sit down and do the writing. But we will complain a lot about how we never get to sit down and do the writing. But clean the kitchen cupboards, anything that can put off the writing.
0: And, and w- in which part of the day do you have that time to do five, to write 500 words?
1: Before I had children, I did it in the evening. And then after the children were born and I had two babies very quickly, so when I felt able to come back to writing, I imagined I'd be able to do that again. Absolutely no way At the end of the day I am dead I am finished I cannot write A shopping list Never mind a book So now I fit it in Where I can I fit it in I try and make it One of the tasks On my to-do list Um, And and just do it You know Send out the invoices um, Edit the work for work And then write 500 words And it should just be One of my to-do lists I say this As if I've really Got it down pat I haven't managed To write anything For weeks So You know, one does it when one can is what it comes down to.
0: And does it, how long does it take to put 500 words into the word processor or onto paper?
1: Yeah, I'm quite fast. I work on a word processor. I'm far too lazy to do it onto paper first. I'm I'm a very lazy writer. Um, I do it quite quickly, so it's about half an hour. Um, but then I, then I, run out of steam. I've, now got, I've got myself put up a little bit, I, I'm not an exercise person. I don't know about running marathons, but I believe that you run five kilometers and then when you start running 10 kilometers, it becomes as easy as the five kilometers, things like that. And I've at myself that now I can sit down and write a thousand words with the same ease that I used to write 500 words. It's finding the time to sit down and write them.
0: The book is The Accident. The author, Gail Schimmel, is joining us in the studio. The book was released just at the beginning of the month. It's published by Macmillan. We'll be back with more conversation straight after this break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And as you've come to expect, we always have great interviews here on High FM. I work very hard to make sure we get top authors both local and international, to join us in the studio. Today's no different, Gail Schimmel is joining us. She's a local author, lives in Johannesburg. The latest book that she's just released is The Accident. It's published by Macmillan. It is available in the shops right now. And we are in conversation with Gail. What is the basic springboard premise of The Accident? Okay, so
1: the Accident is about a woman, Catherine, Who, When her daughter Julia was two, Catherine and her husband were involved in a terrible accident. And that accident has now gone on to have repercussions in all their lives. It has cast a shadow over all their lives. And Catherine has basically been on autopilot. She's had to keep going for her daughter Julia, but Julia is now an adult. And what is going on in Julia's life is going to make the events of those years more relevant to everybody.
0: Very well put because we don't want any spoiler alerts here on the show. People have to go and read the book. As I said, I read it in two days. It was absolutely engrossing. It was once I started, it was the, the ball had been released down the, you know, the, the, the incline and it just kept getting more and more, you know, uh, compelling.
1: I've been told also that because the chapters are very short You do that thing where you go just one more chapter Just one more chapter And eventually it's three in the morning And you're still going just one more chapter So I'm going to concentrate on that short chapter business For future books
0: What was the kernel of the idea around which this novel developed?
1: Very hard to talk about without a spoiler But all my books come from What If All my books are me thinking about my life And thinking about What If Da 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 happened And this one in particular came I often seem to write about life stages Before they happened to me I wrote about being married before I was married I wrote about having children before I had children I wrote about deaths from cancer Before I lived through deaths from cancer So I seem to almost preempt My life in a way And I thought what is a life phase that I haven't been through yet? And Catherine is at a life stage that I have not yet entered. Um, She has a grown-up child. I have small children. And then I started thinking about what if that life phase for some reason was very complicated? And from there the idea grew, and I can't say more without
0: giving away. Can you introduce us to, besides Catherine, some of the other main Narrators, because you have multiple narrators through the book.
1: No, I have four voices. Uh, Catherine, her daughter Julia, um, Julia's lover Daniel, and Daniel's wife Claire, um, and so I wrote from all of their points of view, and it started, you know, I started the book, and I've, d- I've done a four-person point of view twice now in books, and every time I start not realizing I'm going to do that, and then it happens, another voice wants to be heard, and this one, I really, first I thought it would be Catherine and Julia, because they're core to the story, but then Claire really wanted to be heard, and when I got to Claire, I loved writing Claire. Claire is that mother that has everything together. She's that woman who got the memo on how to do life. She doesn't make mistakes. She looks beautiful. She's clever. She's funny. She's nice. If you're sick, she'll bring you a lasagna. She's that perfect woman. And I wanted to explore what's going on underneath a woman like that. And then I'd written the three the three women for a while, and then Daniel wanted to have a say. Poor Daniel was so confused by what was going on in his life, he wanted to have a say. And when I wrote him, because Daniel's a bit of a stereotype, he, he's rather awful. Um, but I had so much fun with him because I wasn't trying to, with Daniel, I wasn't really trying to get to the bottom of him. I was just having fun. And I, I really, I did have fun. And it makes it, it, writing from different points of view keeps it very much alive as you write writing.
0: And you also show your characters' flaws without mentioning them directly. It just comes through their voice. Good. Because, you know, the, awful, <laughs> the awfulness of Daniel—you know—he he doesn't sit out to defend himself, but he. It, I mean, I
1: don't think Daniel knows he's awful. I think Daniel thinks he's completely blameless in everything. He can't understand why his wife is so cross with him for sleeping with her best friend. He, does, he doesn't understand why everybody's angry with him.
0: So it all comes through very, very well. I, I, I often ask authors about the research that they do in writing their books. Sometimes I, I've received some very interesting uh, answers, um, one author told me that you know, he doesn't do research, it just comes from inside. Somebody else told me that when she was um, the author of Mrs. Hancock and the Mermaid, that she actually made all the different foods that she mentioned in her book. There's different levels of Goodness. research that people go through. And mm-hmm. I'm imagining that for the accident, you had to research the psychological impact of a traumatic accident on the survivors.
1: Oh dear, this is so embarrassing. Uh, I'm very lazy, as I mentioned. I didn't research anything; I imagined it all. I suppose a kernel of the idea came from um, one one of the things I have done in my work life is I am the sub editor of a um, legal magazine, and I read a I read a case that was extremely, extremely disturbing, and I acknowledge it in the acknowledgements of the books. It it was traumatic for me. I, I lay awake at night upset about this case for ages, and then it went into the back of my head. but that did form part of the idea of this book, and one can't talk about it more because it gives away a lot um but so that I suppose in a sense that was research, but the psychological impact I think it's something we we all anyone with empathy can imagine what what a terrible loss would be like. You know, I, d- I don't think one has to – and I think we all – it would be different for all of us. Um, but I think often the role of the writer is just to look at the world with empathy. And I hope I succeed.
0: <laughs> I, I think part of, part of the traction of literature is to immerse yourself in someone else's problems and learn empathy through that immersion. So – You've, you, as a writer, you've done that. And as, as readers, I think the accident does give us the opportunity. I,
1: I'm not going, I'm not going to ask you the question I ask everyone of whether or not you cried because I cried every time I reread it and then began to wonder if maybe I'm not quite right in my head that, you know, I wrote it and every time I read it, I knew what was going to happen, but I cried every time. So I'm, I'm a little bit worried about my sanity. <laughs>
0: nah, I don't think you have to worry about your sanity. The, the book is very compelling. So it's, it does. It does press all the different emotional buttons. I found that you know it was compulsion. It was. It was compelling. And uh, I'm not your target market, but I, I I had to finish the book to see what happens. I was I was up till late at night. To I see.
1: hope other men will fo- will follow your lead, including my husband, who's yet to read it.
0: <laughs> uh, the the part of the the the, the accident. Is um, set in the very wealthy upper middle class of Johannesburg with private schools overseas holidays it 's a very privileged segment of society, mm. but instead of taking the catty approach of making raw and witty observations on this group of people, you actually look for their humanity and their decency You you 've subverted the normal trope in these type of books.
1: Well, listen. I have to start by being honest. I'm deep in this group of people. Um, you know, I do. I live in the privileged world of Johannesburg. I can't deny it. Um, I, I really do believe in that one must own one's privilege and recognise one's privilege. And I, I have children at. Uh, private schools in the, in the leafy suburbs of Johannesburg. And these are the people I know. Um, and it's also been because, because in a sense, I have come to that world as a bit of an outsider. It's not entirely my background. And I came to the world with a, with a sense of, of almost expecting these people to be awful and these super wealthy people to be a certain way about them. And, And seeing that humanity that actually we are, we are all the same. You know, we are all just humans. We all, and especially when you look at parenthood, we are all just humans trying to do the best for our children. Some of us have more money than others to do it, but we are all just trying to do the best for our children and facing the same demons. Some people, while they face those demons, are also trying to put food on the table. The people in this book don't have to worry about the food on the table, but they're still facing demons.
0: So you did make everyone very human. Uh, Despite Despite the
1: fact that they can click their fingers and go to Mauritius on no moment's notice (laughs) And besides
0: Claire who just managed to pull everything off perfectly the whole way throughout the book
1: (laughs) I honestly believe and, and you will know this being an education That every year in every school has a Claire in it Every mother knows a mother that they think of as a Claire There's that woman we all wish we could be She's always got the projects finished on time. She always knows what the homework is. Everyone knows a Claire.
0: And then and there's, there's the, the prototype Claire is the character in the book. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are in conversation with local author Gail Schimmel. The book is The Accident. It's published by Macmillan. All the books that have been in the past are currently being mentioned on the show. They, they are posted they are posted onto our Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search for people of the book on 101.9 Chai FM. You'll see on today's post a picture of the cover of the accident and a picture of the author, Gal Schimmel. And, uh, if you only catch a snatch of the show, you can use the Facebook page as your resource next time you're going to book club or you're going shopping for books. Just scroll through and, uh, Look for the books that we've interviewed the authors. You can listen to the podcasts as well. And we'll be back with more conversations straight after this ad break.
1: People of the Book on 101.9 High FM.
0: This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're in the studio today by Gail Schimmel. Her fourth novel, The Accident, published by Macmillan, has just been released. And we are discussing the writing process, some of the ideas in the book. And I want to move on to plotting Because the plotting of the accident is excellent With details mentioned early in the novel That propel the narrative towards the end It's tight, it's clever How do you go about from kernel of an idea for a novel To what we hold in our hand Getting all the plotting so well done
1: So, well first of all, thank you um, But I am a, I'm a plotter When it comes to writing There seem to be two types of writers Some can make up a group of characters And follow their characters And apparently their characters then take them On a complete journey And they don't have to do much more thinking about that journey I tried that once, it didn't work Um, I need to know where the book ends And I need to know more or less Where the book should be in the middle Um, I'm quite A-type, I need to have deadlines I need to know where I have to be when So I'll know how it ends And I'll know the middle but other than that, it's quite a fluid process. So as that happens, I allow things to happen with some fluidity, and I try to allow that if something happens that completely changes it, I'm open to that. It didn't happen in this book. I, it ended more or less where I thought it would end. Um, but, yeah, and then in between that I have fun, and I, it, it is quite a fluid process. My next book which has just taken a step backwards because I had a burglary and lost quite a lot of the book on my laptop. Um, But I'm going to try not to cry about that. But my next book is a proper thriller. And that then I suddenly had to plot properly. Like I, I have a thing, luckily given that I now have to do quite a lot of rewriting, I have chapter by chapter breakdown and that's the first time I've done this and it's been interesting because doing the chapter by chapter breakdown has been quite a challenge for me, but then when it comes to the writing, it's very easy because now you've got a note that tells you exactly what you've got to do in the next chapter so you follow the note and you do it, but yeah, I I did. And, then I, and then there's a little bit where characters come along who I wasn't expecting and I enjoy greatly. Towards the end of the book, Lisette, who keeps saying I'm not the type of person who. I had so much fun with her and wished so badly that I'd introduced her right at the beginning so that I could have played with her a bit more. So that sort of character will come along and, and make that last bit of the book fun.
0: Now she really put that comedy in the book at the end. Um, I interviewed a few years ago uh, Nathan Hill. He's also published by Macmillan. He wrote the book called The Next Wonderful, yes, Wonderful yes, Book. yes, yes. And he had a similar story. He was moving flats. He left his laptop oh in the car. He was working on something spectacular. He lost it all. He went back... And his re his rededication to the art of writing in the face of loss was the next. So there oh, is there, there is there was a there wasn't a, it wasn't a silver lining it was a golden lining because the world was an enriched place for the Knicks.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I can write the next Knicks next, then I'll be okay. I mean, that, that's what I need to do. I'm trying to. I've, I've also believe I think it's Anthony Trollope. Who apparently, used to write the entire first draft put it aside, and then rewrite it. And apparently, as a technique, it does result in a better book. But for me, a lot of the fun of the writing is that I don't know exactly how it's going to play out. And now, in the rewriting, that's going to be a bit lost, because I do know exactly how it plays out. But I'm trying to be optimistic about it. Between, between being burgled, having no electricity, and having no half a book, I'm trying to remain optimistic.
0: That's uh, another advert for the cloud. Save everything to the cloud. I have now
1: learned that lesson, the very hard way. Now everything is in the cloud.
0: <laughs> what does Gail Schimmel read when she's not... Managing the advertising industry and their family. <laughs>
1: um, I read, well I read compulsively It's the first thing. Um, I was asked at my book launch, how do I find time to read? And I said, well that's like asking an alcoholic how they t- find time to drink. You know, I, obviously I find time to read. Um, I do read my own type of writing a lot. I like book club read, should we call it? Griplet. I've been reading more thrillers because I'm, I'm writing in that genre. Um I try to branch out, but I will, especially if it's another South African writer, I like to read what other South Africans are writing, um, and it's exciting. It is such an exciting time in South African writing, because you know that a lot of people have got that hangover from the past, that all our books are angsty, apartheid, memoirs, and that you come out of it feeling like just really bad, and that's not where South African writing's at. It is so fun at the moment, so so I've been enjoying that. Um yeah, I, and I belong to a book club, um, and that also opens up a whole lot of doors that you don't expect. You'll read something that you never would have chosen yourself and thoroughly enjoy it. Um, I'm trying to now think of titles of what I've just read, and I'm going absolutely blank.
0: As a book host, when anyone asks, what are you reading, i go blank as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and especially now with Kindles, because you can't picture the book next to your bed. Although this what the what I've just read I am picturing next to my bed and I still can't come up with the title. Um but with, with Kindle I can't remember anything about what I'm reading.
0: When you write, do you, do you go through draft after draft? Do you send to an editor and get notes?
1: So I... I'm a, quite a, uh, quite a clean first drafter, so normally my first drafts don't need a lot of work. They, I do go through several times, pick up plot inconsistencies because you change things, try and fix up any grammar and typos, etc., try and make it a bit richer on the second draft. And then, because I'm a traditionally published author, so you then have the the backup of the whole publishing house, I don't use beta readers. A lot of people do have a group of people who read and give feedback. I did it with one book. It's not a process that worked for me. Um, So I then send it to my publisher. And they then come back first with high-level commentary, and I do those, work that in. And then it goes to the editor. He comes back with her high-level commentary and I work that in. And then we start the line-by-line type of thing where she tears my wording to pieces and I feel completely like I can't write a word. And then I reread it and realize, actually, she hasn't torn it to pieces. She's just made me sound better.
0: And how long does that whole process take?
1: It takes a long time. This is what I didn't realize when I started. that, I mean, I finished writing the park at least a year ago. I mean, the, the accident, sorry, at least a year ago. Um, and the book that I thought I'd finish now, it would have been at least a year to publication. It's a really slow that publication process when you're traditionally published. It's very slow because there's the editing, there's the proofreading, and then there also the the publisher has a list, so they release you when it fits into their list, not when you fancy being released. So that that for me has been a huge surprise. And you know, people will say after the accident. Have you started writing another book? Well, I finished this a year ago. Of course I've started writing another book. Um, but, and then you've also got to, now I've got to talk about the accident. So I've got to remind myself what happened in the accident. I've actually got a whole other cast of people in my head at the moment. And I have to every now and then try and unravel them. Now, I, I realized just before I lost the new book, I'd written a whole scene that was based on an earlier, an earlier scene that the same character had done, and I'd taken a bit of a joke, and I'd worked it through into the new scene. And then I went back to check, and I couldn't find the original scene. I was like, mm. So I went back to the accident to see if it was in the accident, and it wasn't in the accident. And then I went back to the park, the book before the accident, and there I found the scene that I now thought I was writing a follow-up for. I just got my books completely muddled. <laughs>
0: Last question, and we're on the, the muddling up of the different books. You've got a backlist now. You've got three books that have already been published over the last uh, 18 years or uh, mm-hmm. six, 50, 13 years from 20… T- it must
1: be about 10. It's 10 about years. the same as my child.
0: Okay, so in um, the last 10 years. Can we just share a little bit about what each spring the, the springboard premise of each of those previous three books? Okay. Marriage Vows.
1: Marriage Vows was about a woman who is very happily married and deeply believes in fidelity… And then meets the love of her life, um, so so that had a lot of interesting themes to to explore. And then I wrote whatever happened to the Carly twins, which was fascinating because that story came to me complete. It landed in my head like an egg. And anyone who's read Elizabeth Gilbert on creativity, she believes that ideas float around and find somewhere to sit. I really, really don't believe that, but. The Cowley twins came and landed complete in my head. And that is about a woman. She goes to, she has twin babies. She goes to the doctor and she asks the doctor's receptionist to take care of the babies. She says her husband will come and fetch the babies. And then she goes into the doctor and the babies are never seen again. And it's now 30 years later. And we're hearing it from the point of view of the big brother of those babies and several other people in his life. A lot of fun with that book. The park is about a new mother, Rebecca. I think <laughs> um, a new mother she has she has an adopted baby um who's now three years old, and like many of us, when you have young children, the house is too small a place. She goes to the park where she makes friends with a lot of other women, and two of these women are not what they seem da 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 <laughs>
0: so that's the backlist from Gail Schimmel. this is all grip gri- uh, you've got grip- gri- gri- griplet uh great books domestic noir and uh, thrillers uh, I, as I said from the beginning of the interview I'm very happy to say that I thoroughly enjoyed the accident, I read it in two days uh, in preparation for this interview but I really really wanted to know what was going to happen to all these characters and Julie and Claire and Catherine and Daniel uh, <laughs> it really really was a great opportunity to love the characters that Gail had so convincingly convincingly, you know, conjured into being.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for coming and joining us with your very, very hectic schedule. to are <laughs> back now to police the advertising industry.
1: Oh, I'm, uh, no comment.
0: <laughs> and there's so much happening in that space as well. We'll
1: have a separate separate interview about that.
0: So maybe in the future book we can have some super mom who is a regulatory um, expert within oh. social media. Can't be too close mm. to home.
1: Mm. I'll let you know on that right <laughs> now.
0: This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We've just had our interview with Gal Schimmel. The book is The Accident. We'll be back with more reviews straight after these ads. People of the Book on
1: 101.9 High FM.
0: This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Now we've got the rest of the books that I want to get through today. The first one I'm going to talk about Is a book that I mentioned last week But I just felt that It's the type of book that you have to mention More than once on a book show Because it is so important The book is called War Doctor Surgery on the Frontline The author is David Knott It's the gripping true story Of a frontline trauma surgeon For more than 25 years, David Knott has taken unpaid leave from his job as a general and vascular surgeon with the NHS, that's in Britain, to volunteer in conflict zones and areas blighted by natural disasters. Driven both by compassion and passion, the desire to help others and the thrill of extreme personal danger, he's now widely acknowledged to be the most experienced trauma surgeon in the world. But David began to realize that flying into a catastrophe was not enough. Doctors on the ground needed to learn how to treat the appalling injuries that war inflicts upon its victims. So he began training other doctors in the art of saving lives threatened by bombs and bullets. War Doctor is his extraordinary story. I want to read a short part of of an article that David Nott wrote. Uh, she wrote this for The Guardian just after his book was released in Britain. And it gives you a sense of what you can expect in the book. So these are the words of David Knott. He's the author of War Doctor. I've traveled the world for 25 years in search of trouble. It is a kind of addiction a pull I find hard to resist. It stems partly from the desire to use my knowledge as a surgeon to help people who are experiencing the worst that humanity can throw at them, and partly from the thrill of just being in those terrible places, of living in a liminal zone, uh, of living in a liminal zone where most people have neither been nor want to go. Afghanistan, Sierra Leone, Sudan, Chad, Liberia, Iraq, Libya, Haiti, Gaza, and Syria, to mention a few. Going to those places has changed me, but none more profoundly than Syria. It was in Syria that I began to get seriously angry about the inability of the major powers to prevent hospitals and medical staff from being targeted in war zones. In Syria that I realized I must begin seriously to collate and share the knowledge I had acquired over my career to help other doctors. And after Syria, that post-traumatic stress disorder finally tipped me over the edge. By the time I first arrived in East Aleppo with Syria relief in August 2013, many of the more senior doctors and surgeons had already left. I'm reading from an article written by David Knott. He's the author of War Doctor, Surgery on the Front Line. It's been released by Picador. It's available in shops at the moment. This is an article he wrote when his book was, re- was released in the UK. The article appeared in The Guardian. As many as 95% of the city of Aleppo's physicians had, f- had found a route out. Those who remained were brave and committed, but, they were very f- but there, there were very few of them, and the risks were considerable. Clinics were assigned code names to disguise how many there really were. Ambulances carried no sirens or insignia And at night drove with the headlights off Anything that looked like help for the injured Was seen as aiding the rebels And so a legitimate target for the regime The hospital where I was based was close to the front line Codenamed M1 The majority of injuries we saw were gunshot wounds There were as many as 70 individual snipers dotted around East Aleppo at that time. They simply picked people off as they were crossing the street, going to work or going to the shops, from babies to pensioners. No one was immune. On that first day alone in M1, 11 civilians shot by snipers were brought in. The doctors told me they had been losing a lot of patients with wounds to the major arteries. They needed significant training. I immediately agreed to give evening lectures plus hands-on instruction for any surgeons who wanted it, where I could show my best moves, introducing them to new techniques or little tricks such as how to hold their hands or instruments to save time on the table. On that first day, all 11 patients who had been shot survived, but only after a solid 18-hour shift at the end of which I fell on my bed absolutely exhausted. This is from... David Knott. He's the author of War Doctor Surgery on the Frontline. I have to break for an ad break, but I, in, I urge people to go out, get a copy of this book. It is one of those eye opening life-changing, and headline-setting pieces of non-fiction. It's an extraordinary story of a British doctor performing surgery on the front line of war zones and uh, natural disaster zones. That's War Doctor, but David Knott. We'll be back with more books straight after this ad break.
1: People of the Book on 101.9 High
0: FM. Pick and Pay Norwood Harper have these pocket-saving sweet deals just for you. Pick and Pay kosher stewing beef is delicious at 74 99 per kilo. Pick and pay kosher fresh chicken are very low, eighteen ninety nine per kilo. Crumb chicken schnitzels is just one hundred and sixty nine ninety nine per kilo. Pick and pay kosher lean beef mince is eighty nine ninety nine per kilo. Fries free hot dogs three hundred and sixty grams just twenty nine ninety nine. Catch these and many more specials in store. These specials are exclusive to Pick and Pay Norwood Harper and only while stocks last. Pick and Pay, Harper, Norwood, the best place to shop when you want to buy a lot. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. The next book I'm going to talk about, i also read in just a few days. Uh, it is called Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline. It's by Daryl Bricker and John Ibbotson. The two are Canadian journalists and they have written a book about demography. And uh, before you start rolling your eyes and thinking but population studies are so boring and all the numbers and rates and ratios involved, this is actually a very, very compelling book. It is thoroughly fascinating. And it's really a look at the future of the world's population. I remember when I was growing up. Everyone was talking about the population explosion and population bomb and the world's going to have too many people and there's not going to be enough food and resources for everyone. Well, now we're looking at the almost opposite possibility that we're going to have crashing populations, population decline. <clears throat> and in order to prepare us for such a world, Daryl Bricker and John Ebotson have written a book that – will try introduce us to this world. What they do is they introduce us to basic demography concepts, and then they go around the world and they interview people to find out what type of decisions people are making in their personal lives and without even realizing that their personal decisions are not just personal decisions, but that these personal decisions in family size, education, when to choose to take time off from a job to have children, where to live, because immigration and immigration, migration is a huge factor in population as well. People are, each decision that is made. People are changing the structure of populations around the world. They look at the magical number of 2.1 children per woman, which is necessary for populations to remain stable. If there is a, a, popula- a, a, a fertility rate above 2.1, you're going to have a growing population. If you have less than 2.1 children per Woman, you're going to have a, a decreasing population. And then with the very long sweep of human history going back to the 1600s, the, the 1700s, the best possible stati- statistics, they show how families, first in Western Europe, would go from six children, or seven or six children per woman, and straight after the Industrial Revolution began and people moved to the cities, that number started tumbling, but it was always above 2.1. So you had population growth, but you had less popula- well, less children being born per woman because of people moving to the cities. Then they look at the rapid industrialization having th- happening around the world, in China, in India, in Africa, and they show how that... Move from six, seven children per woman, down to about three or four children per woman, which took over a hundred and twenty, two hundred years in the West is happening now in the span of one or one and a half generations, in what we used to call the Third World. And then they look at how the First World, or the the you know the the, the rich countries, have pushed their birth rates, uh, fertility rates per woman to less than 2.1% places like south korea you're looking at 1.2 or 1.3 children per per woman and what does this have in store what does this store up for us in the future they relook at countries economies and economic performance over the last 30 years in terms of demography japan had a lost decade in the, 20, in the 1990s where there was no economic growth. And then Japan had a second lost decade in the 2000s. And then Japan had a third lost decade in the 2010s, which is coming to the end of that decade. And then they show that Japan reached a fertility rate of 1.5 by 1975, which means that in 1975, Japan, Japanese women were only having 1.5 children, which is quite drastically below the 2.1 replacement fertility rate. And the lack of children from 1975 onwards is really what led to the lost economic decade of the 1990s. So the people who weren't born weren't buying consumable goods, fact, um, washing machines or houses, furniture. And the lack of young consumers who should have been in their 18 to 40 age group was the cause for Japan's suffering economy. Now, if this is going to be happening around the world, America is should Europe should China itself should be experiencing similar lost lost growth lost economic growth. China's one-child policy, which forced, should have been a fertility rate of one, which is less than half the two-point-one replacement level, has to be has to result. In huge changes to the Chinese society and the Chinese economy. The Chinese government's claiming that 400, 400 million children were not born because of the one child policy. China's fertility rate is 1.3. That means for every seven people today, four are grandparents, two are parents, and one is a child. At the end of the century, the authors of Empty Planet say that China's population is going to tumble to about 500 million. If America, very controversially, remains open to immigration, at the end of the century, America will have a population equal to China's. They do say that America should remain open to migration because if they don't, the American population is not replacing itself but if they do remain open to immigration, not only was the past century the American century, the next century can remain the American century. This is all fascinating stuff from Daryl Brick and John Ibbotson, Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline. We'll be back straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Uh, The book I just spoke about, Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline, Daryl Brick and John Ibbotson. It is so readable. The beginning of different chapters, they go to different parts of the world. They attend a a dinner party in Brussels, in Belgium, and they speak to Europeans about their life choices. Then they go to a favela, a squatter camp, basically, in Rio, and they have to be guided through by people who are protecting them from the possible gangs and the drug lords here in the favela. And they then have a conversation with a whole lot of young Brazilian women who live in basically a makeshift squatter camp about their decisions, life decisions, having children, getting an education, what age they're going to get married. They also go to um, a slum in Delhi. And every, they go to Africa as well. Everywhere they go, Women in very wealthy or impoverished societies are all getting educated, pushing marriage off, having fewer children. And it's those individual decisions that they make. It's made a billion times around the world in the course of a year having a huge impact on our future one of the interesting things that they finish off with, because they are two Canadian authors, is they talk about Canadians' immigration policy. Canada is one of the most open societies to immigration. Every year they take in 1% of the Canadian population in terms of immigration, so they've got a population of 30 million. Every year, 300,000 people are let into Canada. Uh, Quite a lot of South Africans... Go into that 300,000 Of course Toronto is almost like Johannesburg North But they talk about how This decision made Quite a few decades ago In Canada Will keep the Canadian population Young and growing Even in the world Where most countries will see population crashes The next two books We're going to talk about Also nonfiction. This is um, Factual Friday The next book is called The Stress Code from Surviving to Thriving by Richard Sutton. Richard Sutton is no stranger to South Africa or to FM. He's a health and performance educator and consultant. He's considered to be one of the foremost experts in his field. Richard has advised top athletes, Olympic teams and international sporting federations. He has lectured at a postgraduate level in the areas of pain management, health and athletic development and consults to leading companies on stress resilience. Employee engagement and productivity Richard lives here in Johannesburg With his family Though his consulting takes him all over the world I know when the book was About to be launched He was overseas training Tennis stars Stress impacts all facets of our lives And has devastating effects On the global economy Including reduced productivity And the huge burden Of being placed on healthcare systems Decades of research reliably show that chronic stress severely compromises our physical and mental health. Now it has been discovered that stress can actually destabilise our DNA and compromise our genetic integrity. This promotes many of the diseases that societies are currently grappling with and could potentially impact on future generations. Yet stress has two faces – Ongoing stress is one of the biggest challenges faced globally, but short intervals of stress can actually offer tremendous potential to grow, break personal barriers and excel. Turning the traditional stress paradigm on its head, this book, The Stress Code, does not advocate stress avoidance, but rather stress resilience, providing tools and skills to buffer the adverse effects of stress As well as enhance our functionality and health. The Stress Code is a response to the global call for stress management solutions supported by extensive scientific research. This book offers comprehensive and structured insight along with interventions that will help you to thrive in adversity. So that's locally published. The Stress Code from thriving, from surviving to thriving by Richard Sutton. And then the last book I'm going to talk about it's called Democracy Works, Rewiring Politics to Africa's Advantage by Greg Mills, Aresugon Abasanjo, Jeffrey Herbst and Tendai Bitti. It also has a forward by Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Democracy Works, the book, explores how we can learn to nurture and deepen democracy in Africa to ensure economic growth and political stability. It identifies democratic playbook to meet the threats to free and fair elections. But substantive democracy demands more than simply regular polls. Democracy is fundamentally about the inner working of institutions, the rule of law, separation of powers, checks and balances and leadership in government and civil society as much as it is about values and the welfare and well-being of its citizens. It also demands that local leadership has a plan for the country beyond simply winning the popular vote. Democracy Works is directed towards leaders and citizens who want to address the extreme demographic and other challenges that Africa faces. Greg Mills is, heads the Johannesburg Braced Brenthurst Foundation. Ale Abasanjo is a former president of Nigeria. Jeffrey Herbst is the president of the African Jewish, sorry, the American Jewish University and Tendati Bitti is a former finance minister of Zimbabwe. The four of them put their ideas together to show us how to make democracy work inside, in, in Africa. It's a very topical book. We've got an election less than two months away here in South Africa and the continent of Africa is looking for solutions to widespread social and political and economic problems. So this is Democracy, Democracy Works Rewiring Politics to Africa's Advantage, published by Picador Africa. Until next week, good Shabbos and keep reading.